Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 158. In this episode, we're talking about early Christian protagonists and their impairments with Dr. Kylie Kraft. Dr. Kylie Crabb is Senior Research Fellow in Biblical and Early Christian Studies and Director of Graduate Research Programs for the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry as part of the Australian Catholic University. She also holds a current Discovery Early Career Researcher Award from the Australian Research Council for her project Inside Others, Early Christian Protagonists and Their Impairments. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie K. Judd, Reverend Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So carrying on in our series on disability and theology, we've been doing a lot of textual studies, uh, thinking about the representation of disability in various texts. And in this conversation, we're, we're extending from the New Testament into early Christianity, early Christian texts. And, and Dr. Kylie Crabb has a lot to share with us, uh, especially drawing from this interesting research project that she's, that she's begun, that she received this award for. Uh, Steph and Chris, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Dr. Crabb? I think something that I'm going to be mulling over for a, quite a while is the concept that she picks up from um, Mitchell and Snyder about narrative prosthesis and the way in which, well, when you look into where is the character positioned in the narrative, where is it, and 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 what's what does that mean for how we're to interpret what this impairment means? Um, I think that something that has come up a lot in this series is the way in which disability and impairments are used as a metaphor um, and just being thoughtful about that rather than just um, unthinkingly adopting that approach um, to the way we think about disability. There's just such a richness to her work and I think this is a really important contribution her research is going to make to the field. Yeah, I really appreciate the way that she contextualises the uh, early Christian protagonists uh, in terms of the normate and the, and the presumed normativity that we have of health, healthy and in scare quote bodies uh, and uh, the way that that then comes across in the received tradition, how, how these characters are received and understood and filtered down into the church as, uh, as the, the normative nature is presumed rather than uh, explicitly um described and therefore how that then impacts on the way that we do church uh, the way that we sing songs the way that we use the metaphors in our in sermons um, and the way that we describe different aspects of our uh, life together and just the the deep thinking that she's been doing there and the pastoral heart that she has is great if you haven't already please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Kylie Crabb. Well, Dr. Crabb, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Great to be having this chat with you all. 
So you were recently awarded a, a DECRA award, which stands for the Discovery Early Career Researcher Award by the Australian Research Council. And you've got an exciting project called Insight Others, Early Christian Protagonists and Their Impairments. Can you tell us a bit about uh, that research and what you're what you're doing with that project? Yes, thank you. Um, it, it is exciting to be working on this and to have three years kind of dedicated to this research. Um, it is, uh, it's part of a, it's got a whole lot of different um, strands to it, the project. Um, but the, the central kind of um, intellectual bit that holds it all together is, is wanting to um, build on all the wonderful work that's being done currently in biblical studies, looking at things from a disability lens. Um, but also to kind of extend uh, and somewhat refine some of that and an aspect of that work, which is to think about um, the the sources that describe um, not kind of peripheral characters or characters that might just appear because of their impairment. We've got lots of those in the biblical text, um, but uh, to look at the way that impairment functions in in really central or protagonist characters in early Christian literature. Um, so there are uh, lots of wonderful, really, um, uh, examples of people applying disability theory um, uh, to, to biblical text and to other early Christian literature. Um, and some, some of them have been really foundational for me in thinking about this new project. So um, one of them is uh, Rosemary Garland Thompson's idea of the normate, which is to say, um, uh, I, I guess for, for me, the easy way I think about it is also about thinking about um, uh, what's normal anyway. But it is also this idea that unless we're explicitly told uh, certain features of, uh, of a character or of a person, our default understandings all kick in. So um, if we think intersectionally, we might think that unless we're told otherwise about an early Christian figure, we might think that they're male, we might think they're elite, um, able-bodied, however we're going to define that, and, and various other um, sort of attributes. Um, but uh, in fact, this is a way of getting behind this kind of veiled subject, this normate subject, and thinking, well, um, why would we have that set of assumptions? A very modern kind of assumptions. Uh, if we start thinking about the nature of impairment in antiquity, then we might think actually there's all kinds of different differences, different kinds of differences, um, uh, as there are today, um, but that in fact, it's much more complicated picture than that. So my project is about using some of that insight to unpack how we think of early Christian figures. Um, and another key one that's been really uh, uh, very important has, has been talking about this idea that um, uh, Mitchell and Snyder come up with, David Mitchell and Sharon Snyder, which is about um, narrative prosthesis. So this awesome snazzy phrase um, is, is about talking about um, the way in which disability and in fact they point out that unlike some other kinds of um maybe minority attributes that humans might have um uh, that are really obscured in the texts of of in contemporary times and and ancient times is also true um disability is actually really prevalent in literature but it is um hyper symbolic it's it's kind of used in this way to make a point about something else and biblical scholars have really gotten on board with this great way of thinking about stuff and said um yes check it check it out check out the way that people with disabilities in gospel literature are just used to show the power of jesus 
and they're changed and healed and then they can participate like normal people can and all those kind of dynamics which have been really important in literature in biblical studies to point out um but from my perspective sort of extending that a bit it's kind of interesting that we haven't then used that to think about what is the place um what, how important is um narrative position in the way that disability functions because while it's really uh, very helpful to look at those kind of characters that are exploited at the margins of our narratives, one of the other realities is that all the, there's a whole lot of um, central protagonist characters who are presented as having impairments, um, but we don't pay so much attention to their impairments. So from Moses, Eli, Paul, all these people are described as having impairments, but uh, when we engage in... Um, study of these figures it's not the first thing that comes to mind so that's the kind of intellectual grounding um I'm happy to say more about what it actually is on what the what I'm actually doing with that um if you want yeah thanks Carly I was wondering if you could explore a bit more that nature of the normate and and then mm. just the the framing of it so you mentioned Paul so often I think um treatments of Paul show Paul as this sort of superhuman large and life mm. figure, you mm. know, planted all these churches, you know, minor quibble about whether or not he actually planted them in the first place is aside. Uh, and you, ha you have tome biographies written about all of the exploits of Paul. And yet his own self-description is of one who is in Romans seven, you know, f fraught with mental and, and psychological sort of challenges. And then his own physical frailty, whatever that is, a thorn in the flesh, um, yeah. his unimpressiveness, et cetera. Um, yeah. What does that do to our understanding of um, of Paul and, and how do we then frame that? In your, in, and what have you found in your research? Yeah, great. Uh, exactly. This, I'm totally on board with all of the points that you're making there. And, and even, you know, that um, uh, in Galatians, he says, you know, it's because of a physical infirmity that I first came to you. And of course, there's been a like little strand of biblical scholarship that's gone like, oh, let's get all diagnostic about it. What's the physical infirmity? And you get these kind of competing, you know, oh, it's some kind of visual impairment based on the account in Acts or maybe had epilepsy or maybe, you know, all those things. But, but you know, how reading the influence of Paul, this, you know, two millennia of extremely influential theology on the life of the church um, through the lens of his own account of weakness. Um, I mean, there's a really, I think there's a really creative um, conversation to be had there about how this, how this impacts on it. Um, I guess the, um, I mean, one of the things for me is, you know, like Albert Schweitzer says about the, um, all of the accounts of the life of the historical Jesus, that it says more about the kind of liberal biblical scholars who wanted to uh, find their own kind of um, image in Jesus than it does about the Jesus of, that we might get a historical glimpse of through the Gospels. And I think that we have a, a, a received tradition in interpreting Paul that is very similar to that, that is, you know, reformers, deeply worried about a range of things that they go to Paul about, um, but not necessarily wondering about what that, you know, self-disclosed account of finding strength in weakness, um, recognising the foolishness of God in the way that they operate. I mean, that's, it's, um, it does seem like it's at the heart of Paul's theology. Uh, and even when it is acknowledged in, in some of those sources, it's still um, the kind of 
privileged, um, uh, hyper-intellectual um, uh, kind of church leader, powerful church leader who's interpreting it and finding an image of themselves in, in the power of Paul. Um, so, so yeah, I think there, there's a lot of, a part of my project is looking both at the initial sources and then at the reception. And so I'm really interested in historical contextualizations of, of the way these um, characters are, are read, these early Christian figures are, are read and understood. So one of the things as well about, about Paul and this dynamic, I mean, uh, as Chris was kind of framing the question, there's this issue about how we, you know, kind of write biographies about Paul, but even canonically within Acts, Acts doesn't present the same sort of picture of Paul that Paul self-discloses about himself in his letters, right? Uh, Paul is a, kind of a miracle worker as opposed to somebody who is concerned about the physical um, weakness that he experiences. I'm wondering if you could say a bit about that dynamic between Acts and, and Paul's self-representation in his letters. Yes, absolutely. There, I mean, Paul is a figure in Acts that is also serving a kind of narrative purpose. Uh, and it's a similar dynamic we see across the apocryphal Acts too, as the kind of wonder-working nature of the apostles are kind of uh, further expanded um, in early Christian uh, thinking. Um, and early Christian kind of witnessing, um, there, there's a kind of uh, apologetic reason for that, I guess. Um, I mean, it's never uh, 100% in one direction or the other, right? There is this kind of complex um, portrait that's going on. Um, one of the things that uh, there's a, a great book um, by Anna Rebecca Soloveg, uh, who's written um, uh, Negotiating the Disabled Body. There's a chapter in that uh, where she talks about Paul and she's talking about the ways in which Paul is presented um, uh, and, and, in, and, in fact, you get he, she also writes about Jesus in this way as being presented as having a, some kind of um, insanity, madness uh, going on, um, uh, you know, the way that the family, Jesus's family talks about him and stuff like that. Um, and and she, she points out that there is a complexity in the portrait here where on the one hand these figures can be presented as having some kind of um, uh, stereotypical madness which is pushed against, but one of the ways the sources push against it is to point out an enduring um, uh, masculinity that they're, they're um, uh, even though it might look like they're a bit crazy, they're still conforming to the things that they should be conforming to as proper blokes and and so trustworthy in that way. So um, you get all these agendas that are that are running through the text. So on the one hand, showing it the weakness, but maybe also wanting to reassert um, the the ways in which the characters are. Um, are, are nonetheless strong. So uh, it's not all or nothing. And I think Acts expands on Paul's letters um, in, in that kind of way, the, in the portrait of the figure of Paul, doing both of those things so that he can be weak, but also extremely stoic. He's modelled on Jesus from, from Luke. His travel, his journey is modelled on the journey in Luke's gospel. Um, and and so he, and there's a certain kind of... Um, uh well there's 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 this stuff about the way that affect and emotions work for both of those characters in parallel uh which of course Brittany Wilson has done some some wonderful work on as well about these unmanly men in Luke and Acts yeah thanks so much Kylie something that one of our previous guests Eric Harvey was speaking about um was in the context of you know 
blindness and the healing narratives in particular and what you referred to before about the function that um, people with disability in these texts function as is as a recipient of other other person's actions rather than having an agency of their own yeah. I was wondering that given as you're talking about the role that weakness plays in 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 people with disability and in in the sense that in a lot of these texts it's a passive there's not much agency and that that's associated with with weakness or so weakness and passivity whereas in in, in the context of Paul, who has a different narrative position, that that seems to pivot the way that weakness functions. Mm -hmm. Have you found have you found that there is uh, like an alignment between what the narrative function of a particular character is and the way that weakness is conceived of in your research? Mm, great question. Um, I think. Um, the way weakness is conceived of is a good uh, way of wondering about it with the texts. Um, certainly uh, what I'm noticing, and I'm still early on in uh, this funding has only just recently started, um, uh, what I'm noticing is, is about the role that that weakness plays in the characterization of the figure, like how much they are defined by this. Um, mm. And the kind of yeah. critique that we get of peripheral characters who are really just exploited and, and the other part to um, Mitchell and Snyder's idea of narrative prosthesis is that the way it works is that it plays on a negative cultural stereotype about the impairment that is being used. So sort of like the archetypal example would be someone like, um, uh, you know, like Captain Hook in Peter Pan where his um his his prosthetic hand as a hook uh, is part of the negative characterization of the villain and it plays on the idea that somebody with disabilities like this or like the facial disfigurements of of James Bond villains and stuff like that 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 this kind of um uh, physical visual disability uh we're meant to assume is a bad thing so the character that's introduced with this bad thing is going to be doing that right um so so you get characters where the where you're playing on this cultural stereotype but then these other sort of central characters that are more powerful like you're saying um don't have that negative characterization that is based on their uh physical or other impairment um so I, I mean I think a, a kind of lovely example that um that I look at as part of my project so the project has as I said lots of strands and one of them is that I'm writing a book about this with um four case studies of uh individual uh early Christian figures and one of them is the portrait of Peter's daughter um who people may or may not know about because she doesn't show up of course in our New Testament literature um uh, but in uh, a sort of second century text uh, which is just uh, survives in a one Coptic manuscript we have a story about Peter's daughter who um is is paralyzed and it's all um set in the context of uh, sort of like a layered narrative there's a story that is kind of the present time where Peter is healing a whole lot of uh, different people and then the people there say this is all very well but they criticize him for not healing his own daughter who's there sitting paralyzed uh, and he does a big kind of you know miraculous wonder working thing where he says well let me show you I can do it and he heals her and then he sends her back to being paralyzed and the text says sends her back to being helpless in the corner um, and there of course 
they rejoice that she's healed and then they are despondent and critical the crowd around when she is paralyzed and he then tells this story about how when she was born he had an insight that terrible things would happen because of her beauty if she was if she stayed well uh, and then when she's 10 uh, a terrible thing does happen it's more complicated than just saying a terrible thing happens but what but basically um there is a uh, she she's kind of um targeted by uh this guy Ptolemy who um and there's a missing bit in this one manuscript um who seems to abduct her and then return her to the family home and when she's only 10 which is obviously before the age when she should have been uh, married uh, uh but returns her to the family home uh paralyzed and they rejoice that she's paralyzed because it saved her from this inappropriate um uh, sexual aggressor uh, and they had refused her to uh, refuse to have her betrothed also because the the story is about championing uh celibacy so it's a, it is I should have given a content warning it's a terrible kind of story um uh, so we have this this account and throughout it in this version the second century version Petronilla I mean sorry Peter's daughter she doesn't have a name she doesn't have a name she doesn't say anything um and she's completely um Sort of just acted upon at these different points in the story um, to make a different narrative point. But then centuries on, uh, 5th or 6th century Latin text, uh, the acts of uh, Nerus and Achilles, we get, uh, which is a kind of um, loose compilation of martyrdom stories. Suddenly this woman um, has her own name, it's Petronilla, um, and she um, is listed as one of these martyrs. Uh, but she has quite an active role now. She's still, uh, we still have this story about that she's paralyzed and that Peter heals her and then re-paralyzes her. But the second half of the story is really different and it cuts in instead with a, her own speaking part where she has a sexual aggressor also come with military, um, with soldiers and stuff to try and do a, a marriage by capture abduction. And she says, no, give me three days to do this. Uh, I'll contemplate what's going on. Um, she then spends those days in, in fasting and prayer, uh, takes communion and then lies back on her convalescence couch, convalescence couch and dies um, and and then becomes a martyr so, and was recognised as being a martyr. So she she's very active. She, uh, I, on the one hand, it still seems kind of horrendous that her choice is to die rather than to um, uh, be subject to this um, uh, this suitors or aggressors advances, which she doesn't want to participate in, in order to maintain her commitment to celibacy. Um, but but the story really becomes her own her own story. She's a protagonist. And one of the things, I mean, there's loads of things that are interesting about the comparison between those two texts. But one of the things that's interesting to me is that she is still paralyzed through through this this later version of the text that's all happened prior to the um this aggressor coming and trying to take her um uh to capture her for marriage um but it doesn't feature in this it doesn't stop her from being a protagonist it doesn't stop her from being active uh, and from making you know really decisive choices uh that she believes to be faithful in this in the second text so that this kind of transition in the story about Peter's daughter to Petronilla the named protagonist um I think illustrates a lot of what's sort of at the heart of my project about wanting to to see 
how it's different when we see the impaired character at the centre of their own narrative. Yeah, and it's so interesting when you decouple that link between a disability and whether or not you have agency um, in that example. Have you got any preliminary findings on what happened between in like kind of the ecosystem of the communities that were writing these texts that introduced that new degree of agency For in Petronilla? Petronilla's story example. Yeah. Um, specifically and um, I mean it would be awesome if we had more sources that fill in all of the the gaps um uh, so no on that <laughs> on that front but I mean she does I think it's interesting that she is included in this compilation of martyrs and there there is a um a site that is associated with her martyrdom uh and has uh you know a fresco and stuff on the on the wall about that later reception also um you know, we get a few um, uh, illustrations uh, and and even um, uh, some statues that are about her. Um, and it, it's interesting to me that in some of those, she's standing with a palm frond just, you know, um, without any kind of uh, indication of her impairment um, necessarily being important. Uh, in some other sources, um, she's uh, lying on a, on a couch with um, key figures all around her and stuff. So that cl clearly the context is still um, a recognition of her impairment as part of that. So, I th I mean, I think that's that's interesting to me about like the way that her tradition goes in a couple of different directions about whether her impairment is important to her to her portrayal. But I do wonder if it's it's the idea of of her as um, as a martyr that helps her to become her own character to have a you know she's in a a calendar where um uh, you know there's a saint's day that recognizes her um and and so on something that occurs to me as you're describing the way in which these these narratives kind of um inhabit it seems like they're inhabiting their own genre almost but they they are playing on negative caricatures negative cultural car caricatures as you said is it generally the sense that um, these impaired protagonists they they have their agency and they do they 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 do their you know great deeds or whatever um, in spite of their impairment? Like yes, this this trope this this um this negative cultural caricature it's still in play and it's still active in the narrative, um and they it's even even though they have this this disability or this impairment they've nonetheless um been able to to um serve the function of the protagonist rather than which in my mind it, it still is complicated because it it still views like impairment in a way that is negative, negatively construed. I'm not sure if that question makes very much sense, but do you, do you get the kind of yeah, impulse? Yeah, yeah, like, I think I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, your question is do they do they kind of like embody something important sort of despite their impairment rather than that just being part of who they are? I mean, understanding I guess the impairment as like, oh, it actually can, can be something that is not always a bad thing in someone's life. Yeah, um, like yeah. something that um, one of our 
previous guests spoke about was the way in which often disability, particularly acquired disability, is understood as tragedy and cut-off potential. Mm. Um, and I'm just interested in the way that these texts are conceived of and, and received mm. Mm. in your research. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I guess a part of the complexity of impairment and disability is its diversity and the diversity of lived experience that's that sits behind it. So uh, the World Council of Church, uh, World Council of Churches have this fantastic set of documents, um, and the, uh, the uh, there's a revised version of it called the Gift of Being, um, and it's really clear to say that some people's experience of disability is um, that it is um, uh, it, it is a hurdle in people's experience of, to fullness of life, and people experience it like that. We need to hear when people say that. Uh, but we should not presume that because loads of people's experiences that it is just part of life um, and and that it's, you know, it's in a way it's it's just part of, um, yeah, the, the different kinds of difference that we all experience. So I guess um, one of the things that uh, I like to think about is about the nature of human limitation and the way that these sources might draw our attention to the diversity of human limitations, which we all share. And, and so it is actually a kind of contemporary obsession with perfection that leads us to read ancient sources as though there are only people with impairments and normal people, <laughs> um, this kind of binary between ability and disability, which is, which is not faithful to our contemporary setting lived experience either. Everybody lives with with human limitations and there are different kinds of limitations that we deal with but we we all face this reality um and it is a misunderstanding of antiquity to to just put this kind of binary over it because in fact we know all sorts of things you know like what does the ancient world look like if nobody has spectacles to be changing their um their visual abilities. Uh, two of the four people in this call would be having all sorts of troubles, I can tell, from looking at our pictures as we wear our spectacles. Uh, and that might be something that changes over a lifetime or that we're born with. Um, so, so there are kind of things that we might think are uh, continuities of the physical experience of being a human that some people's um, vision can be um, aided in, in some kind of ways or is vision is not as, as sharp as, as others. Um, but, but there's all sorts of things in antiquity, stuff to do with nutrition, stuff to do with uh, military engagement. That means that there's different kinds of physical um, impairments on the go. Um, so, so in fact, what we should really be thinking of is in what ways are each of the figures we're dealing with impaired, not who are the impaired people and who are not. Uh, because in fact, human experience will be like that in antiquity, even arguably more so than, than today. But I think that... Um, uh, part of the way that uh, disability theory is is helping us by asking us to problematize the binary between ability and disability is for us to recognize some continuities in human experience there um, and and think perhaps I mean there are definitely some kinds of uh, human differences that require particular um, particularly careful listening on our behalf to hear how that lived experience works and ways in which the the 
the community should adapt to help um, people participate fully in our communities. Uh, I definitely don't mean that because there's a continuity uh, of experience that that means we should just, you know, listen to it, to ourselves and not listen anymore to, to people with particular experiences of impairment, but um, to, to really rethink that. So, so getting back to your original question about whether people, uh, these figures are shown to um, uh, be kind of like held up examples uh, of of Christian disciples despite their impairment. I mean, maybe it, it would be an interesting thing to wonder about about the role that weakness and weakness and strength and foolishness and wisdom work in Paul, and to think about that together. Is it does he consider it to be despite? Uh, but I wonder if it is in fact just through his 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 attention to uh, human limitation actually helps him to understand something that's already fundamental to the Christian gospel, which I think might be closer to the truth. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the areas that is quite striking with um, uh, Paul and and Petronilla as well, where the, mm. the disability, the imp- imposition of the disability um, enables that form of witness in martyrdom. Mm. And mm. in 1 Corinthians, you see um, Paul sort of trying to express that he, that the, his lack of eloquence, um, his lack of uh, mm. ability, uh, whether that mm. in whatever form that is, his limitation there is actually mm. a, um, a, a part and parcel of the gospel and, and the way the gospel is, pro- is being proclaimed to, proclaimed to the mm. Corinthians. Um, it's almost the enabling factor, um, if you like. Mm. But I wonder what happens, and and perhaps this comes back to the uh where we started with thinking about the biographies of Paul. Um, it strikes me that so often when we construct that, we had that reception history of, of the, the ubermensch Paul, the, the, the Superman who can do everything. Mm-hmm. We then say that then that, that, that continuity extends into the church. And so I, I wonder if sometimes um, we end up in positions where we enable think unhealthy um, patterns of uh, belonging in the church, uh, or, more, or more precisely, unhealthy patterns of abuse, uh, because we've dropped the the limitations of human experience. I'm interested. Yeah, then for your research, um, how do you think it will affect uh, on church experience and and our lived experience uh, here in Australia and in the West uh, as we wrestle with this uh, tension between ableness and and the 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 perception of of unlimited ability and things like that well i'm hoping the research has something to say about this i mean it is um it is still it is a project about historical sources which have important theological implications and so the way i think about it is that our contemporary questions which are alive and well in the church experience uh, also in, in an Australian setting in the context of the Royal Commission into the disability sector, which is going on in Australia at the moment, um, responses worldwide to the COVID pandemic, which have really wrought, uh, you know, we just did something that was really costly at, at a global level to protect the vulnerable. And part of the motivation for a lot of people about that was because we thought that we were the vulnerable. So we wanted all of a sudden, we're very motivated to make sure that everybody was kept safe. But but as we sort of grapple with the fundamental insights about that, what does it mean 
to think about things from the perspective of our shared experience of limitation, our shared experience of vulnerability, and then to realise those who are most vulnerable might need some kind of like structural response as well. So all of these things are contributing in our setting, I think. Um, and the way I think of it is that those contemporary questions sharpen the way, the kind of questions we bring to our historical sources um, and then take back into our current setting. And when I think about the historical sources, I should say that the project includes, uh, like I said before, this both the, an analysis of the, um, the first examples we get of uh, narratives or primary sources about these figures that I'm looking at um, and the reception over time. So I'm going to be using case studies of, you know, particular moments when the impairment of my characters, so which is Elizabeth and her infertility, um, Paul uh, and his weakness, uh, John, who is described as having many weaknesses in um, uh, in the acts of, sorry, did I say John? The acts of John, um, who, um, uh, which might be because, you know, in the biblical tradition, he's an older person. So it might be about age and infirmity, or it actually might be something else. There's all these sources have problems about, um, they're, they're very, Apocryphal Acts literature is very interested in questions of sexuality and celibacy and seeing weakness as um, associated, which weakness, which is basically a, a New Testament, early Christianity word for talking about physical infirmity. It's also the words that are used in the medical literature. Um, so think about weakness as being like sexual desire. Uh, so in fact, wondering about the way in which early Christian sources maybe think of that as a disability that gets in the way of, of people's um, discipleship. Uh, so those three characters plus Petronilla. Uh, so I'm looking at those sources and then contextualizing some of, of the reception of those figures. Uh, when, do, when do readers of Paul care about his infirmity and when do they not even mention it at all? And how does that shape the theology that comes out of reading Paul in different historical settings? So that's part of what is going on with, with that. Um, and I, as part, as a kind of accountability uh, part of the project as well, I have a reference group, only, because I've only just started, I'm just setting it up, but a reference group um, of people with lived experience of disability to be um, not, not necessarily, not uh, experts in the biblical studies side of it, but um, accountability partners for thinking about the language we use, the questions we ask and why that's important. And then at the end of the project, coming back together to look at, um, it's described as a uh, translation policy lab, thinking about research translation, thinking about um, does any of this uh, give us new ways to think about the the place of, of um uh, the way we think about disability and impairment in our contemporary policies, uh, you know, responding to some of this stuff from COVID or um, the Disability Royal Commission and, and all of that as well. Um, the other part of the project that I have is a, is a more extended reception historical bit. Uh, I am having a, um, I'm hosting a, a workshop uh, with people that I used to do a bit of work with when I lived in Oxford, the Oxford Centre for Reception History of the Bible. Um, and we're going to look at the uh, receptions of biblical disability in general. So not necessarily all the protagonist characters, but just in general examples of infirmity um, in the biblical text or other early Christian literature and examples of the reception over time. Uh, and I'm really hoping that that's um, 
designed among other things to to support a website that we're going to put together um, with examples of this examples of artworks or other um, uh, other ways in which people in different historical contexts different geographical contexts have engaged with these um, uh, examples of disability and I'm really hoping that this will both be um, an important repository because uh, no one has really compiled this stuff before for other scholars who want to work on disability in the biblical text um, but also for kind of everyday users of these biblical texts uh, to, to prompt um, prompt reflection uh, on these things so um, I'm conscious uh, as uh, someone engaged in church life as well and um and in thinking about you know the way that we use the uh the lectionary whatever tradition people are coming from the way we use bits of biblical text uh in worship services that um the churches are churches are full of um faithful well-meaning people who read these texts and don't necessarily have really good um uh resources uh to hand to think about the problems about how we use these texts and I would extend that to being the way that biblical um, imagery is used in hymns uh, that it can be you know read uh, if you're if you're involved in re um, leading worship and you're choosing hymns like read you know verse three and four of the hymn before you said it and you might discover there's something like some really bad theology in there about disability and think about it from the perspective of the person in the congregation who identifies in a contemporary setting as having the disability that is used as a metaphor or some kind of other thing in your hymn. Anyway, so I, I, I'm wanting this website to be a resource for people who engage with these texts week in, week out, and want to do it faithfully and to, and to think about uh, some of these questions along the way. So that is, that is another part of the project as well. So I was really interested in the four case studies and specifically thinking about Elizabeth's infertility. Um, when we had uh, Dr. Louise Gospel on, she did a, a, a wonderful job talking about the woman with the issue of blood and highlighted how, you know, this woman was probably infertile and why that, you know, that would have been uh, a disability in, in the ancient world, especially to think about um, to think about the, the the woman not being able to have have children. Um, but it, it started to make me think about a distinction that's often made between visible and non-visible disabilities and thinking about your four case studies, um, Elizabeth in particular being one where, you know, uh, she could pass, so to speak, if we use the language of passing uh, as somebody who might not have a disability. And I, I started to wonder um, to what degree do you address or do you uh, think might be um, relevant to address um, ancient physiognomy, the idea that what we can learn about um, somebody, uh, somebody's character, their virtues, et cetera, is, is really externally based, what they look like. And of course, that implies a lot of um, assumptions about what is quote unquote normal and these sorts of things. I'm just curious what um, what you might say about um, Elizabeth's disability in, in light of this kind of uh, ancient physiognomy around disability. Mm. Yeah, this is great because, of course, the, the literature about physiognomy, <laughs> not saying it correctly, um, is, is about um, uh, setting out norms. And and so and so we can have writers that are exploiting those norms in order. It's a bit like you know what we we're talking about in terms of narrative pr prosthesis that it's 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 leveraging an assumption the reader is already meant to have about somebody with you know 
weak ankles or, uh, you know, those those kinds of uh, physical features uh, in order to make a different point. So, so there's some fantastic biblical um, studies or, already done on some of these questions. Mikhail Parsons, people like this have done some great work about that. Um, it, it is interesting thinking about various conditions that might be considered disabilities but are not um, immediately obvious to the to the viewer. Um, and, and this will connect with um, an idea that I'm sure that you, others of your guests in this fantastic series you're doing about uh, disability impairment uh, will already have talked about, which is the distinction between disability and impairment, the different models of disability. So um, of course, this is an, an important thing that we that we might um, think about what how we understanding these different uh, ideas so we have impairment as a kind of description of of a condition that uh, we might point out from a cultural perspective is um, context specific uh, whether you are are able to uh, whether someone might have a mild intellectual disability that makes uh, literacy really difficult uh, that is much more impairing in a contemporary setting than it would have been in our kind of first or second century setting uh, so we have a kind of cultural contextual problem with uh, with impairment um, but the different models of talking about disability and impairment will point out that disability is the sort of social um, uh, layer that gets put on top of uh, some kind of description of a condition um, so in a if we take infertility as an example in a contemporary setting that would be very much recognized as a medical issue there are lots of medical interventions that people attempt um, uh, but it's very unlikely you know you're not going to take the disability kind of box on a form for infertility in a contemporary setting what we encounter in antiquity is that there is the kind of like there's the impairment angle the person doesn't have the children that they are longing for um, but there is also this extra layer of social um, uh, stigma and critique for the person that doesn't have children. Um, so um, uh, that's the point at which it might be seen as a disability, sort of like also how we think about lepra, like leprosy, skin conditions uh, in the biblical text. And compared to now, that that's not really described as, an, as a disability now, but, um, but it, it has all these kind of social ramifications in, in antiquity that, that take it into the realm of disability. Um, the, one of the things we discover, I think, in, in our sources is that, that where there is something like a kind of invisible impairment, um, I mean, I guess there are examples, we don't know, because there could be examples where that's going on all over the shop and we don't get told. But the way we know about it in text where it is there is that we're told about it. Um, so I've done a bit of uh, research about the the falling sickness um, or the sacred disease in antiquity, which uh, has a lot of the symptoms that we would associate with epilepsy in the contemporary setting. Uh, whether it's the same uh, condition is open to some debate, or whether it's helpful to retrospectively diagnose is a big debate. But but this kind of um, condition, and of, of course that might not be. Uh, visual, you know, the he a healing from the falling disease is not going to be obvious unless you are told. But of course, these texts tell us that they've that it's been healed. It's not just they're not currently having some kind of episode. 
it's we're told that they're healed. And so um, for uh, infertility, we see a transition. We see Elizabeth have a have a child in John 1. Um, oh, sorry, John 1, Luke 1, have John the baby in Luke 1. Um, but, um, you know, there is also an interesting side to the uh to the reception thinking about does the importance or otherwise of infertility change in the early church when um, uh, celibacy uh, starts being a central measure of faithful discipleship, then fertility starts being a bit less important, right? So so you get this this shift also in some sources at that time. Um, so that's what I'm interested in exploring. Uh, but I guess even the example that Louise is is talking about there the text is telling you something about the um gynecological well-being of this woman who upon whom jesus shows compassion um and the we need to learn to read it like a first century reader and to hear not just the anguish we would imagine of the kind of symptoms that she is dealing with on a daily basis um in in that setting but the further point that it makes about that the other layers of stigma that she would be encountering Carly um so I'm interested with the the website and the resource then for uh modern expressions in and expressions in the church then mm. um you've already produced some initial resources for uh church use uh I know you wrote some bible studies for the United Church Synod uh here in in Australia um how how can people engage with that work of yours? Well, there is um, those studies actually I did for the Victorian and Tasmanian Synod of the Uniting Church in Australia are available online. With um, uh, it was a, a presentation, but we've also made it available with some discussion questions and stuff like that, so people can uh, engage with that. We've encouraged people to use them as the basis for a Bible study in different in in your home congregation or in you know the the community that that wants to explore those things. So definitely in that way, um, there are various other bits and pieces that I have written for a more general audience as well. Um, and certainly that will be a part of the project. Uh, when I say that I'm hoping that the um, website will be both a resource for scholars and for uh, people who are interested in a more kind of lay um, or applied kind of context, um, there will be things written on that website and website that will um, uh, give, give a general audience a, a way in to looking at the receptions. Um, so that, yeah, there's various ways like that for people to engage with it. I'm really grateful for the way that you've done this kind of translation piece between the reception history that you've looked into and then trying to see, well, practically what does this mean for our communities? And uh, I've only looked in a cursory way in those resources, but I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into them. For our listeners, if you were to have one one or two kind of key take-homes for them, th things that you'd like to see change in the way that people handle texts or that they, the way that they um, arrange things in their communities and their local church communities, what would be the one or two things that you'd say, if you can be mindful of this or pay more attention to this or shift the way you do this, what would those, what would those things be, Kylie? Fantastic question. Um, I think one of them would be to uh, to bring 
a broader understanding about um, the nature of impairment in antiquity to our reading of biblical text to kind of interrogate the assumptions we bring to to our reading of of figures in biblical sources uh, and our kind of normate veiled subject assumptions that uh, that uh, there are um, you know people with disabilities and people without and that we identify as the people without um, uh, so I, I would encourage um, that kind of reading I would encourage and I think there are a few things that would flow on from that. Um, one is that we would be much less likely to use examples of impairments as metaphors in the way that we uh, lead worship. Um, it's really easy for liturgy to fall into this trap of using um, blindness and deafness um, uh, metaphorically. But to think about how that feels to someone with a visual impairment uh, and or, you know, or whichever other kind of um, sensory or physical impairment that people might have. Uh, so to just interrogate the easy ways that we kind of perpetuate um, divisions amongst people in the uh, in, you know, the people of God um, in, in the way that we do these things. I think more helpful metaphors are things like thinking about different kinds of difference. In, in the model from Paul on the, the nature of the body, where all parts are important, um, where, in fact, the more vulnerable parts are treated with the greatest honour. And so we might think about what that means for our practice in our churches. Um, and, and I think, uh, I mean, like one of, one of the other um, uh, important things that different models of disability teach us, you know, so the social model of disability will say to us the problem, uh, the classic example for this is the problem is not the need to use a wheelchair. The problem is the community that doesn't build a ramp. So we have this challenge here to think about how, how are we ensuring the full participation of all the people of God in our, in our midst, but we are also needing to think about where do we truly, who are the, um, who are the voices that will most um, helpfully give us this sense of what the gospel is? So in the same way as treating with greatest honour the most vulnerable parts, we might also say now that we're all in the building, whether we use the stair or the ramp, uh, we should make sure still to attend to the voices of the people who needed to use the ramp because they might have other things to tell us about uh, God's true nature. Um, and and also other challenges that all of us need to hear. Um, might also be some solace for everybody in it as we think about the human limitation, which is what we all um, struggle with. Dr. Crabb, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your great work, and we hope that our listeners will check out your website and, and um, the results of this uh, award that you received. Congratulations on that, and uh, look forward to seeing uh, the completed projects. Thanks so much. It's been great to talk to you. Um, and I'll um, look forward to following along. Thanks. 